Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we love all kinds of movies. Recently, we have really been loving horror movies, but we are slowly easing our way into November. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of that today. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you doing today, other than being tired and meh? Uh, yeah, I'm tired <laughs> and meh. Possibly getting sick. Maybe my body's not gonna get sick. I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. But I I I don't want this weekend to end just because I really need the break. <laughs> oh, I know. I know the feeling. <laughs> Yeah, I know the feeling. But do you have any um, plans for Halloween? Or are you just like, I know what I'm doing, but... My plan is to sit on my friend Camille's couch with Camille and her dog, Jojo, who frequents my Instagram, <laughs> and try to convince Camille to watch some not scary, but Halloween-ish movies, because she's very not into horror at all. So, mm. trying to figure out some that I can maybe convince her to, you know... So, well, stuff like Young Frankenstein, I think. Yeah, yeah. Evan yeah, it's... Me Frankenstein, you know, those, mm-hmm. those kinds of films. That's kind of the route I was going to try to go, something like that. So, it's a little tricky because she also doesn't like anything that's fantasy. So, <laughs> I have to also, like, I have to figure out something that's not fantasy and not horror, but Halloween-ish. Focus. <laughs> Hocus? Nope, I hate Hocus Pocus. Oh yeah, that's right. You hate Hocus Pocus. You're one of the you're one of the freaks of nature. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the worst witch. I mean, now I'm thinking of children's films. <laughs> like, well, that won't bother people. Um, huh? That's a tough one, actually. It because, is. Yeah. You know, and and, pe- and people's mileage does vary in terms of what actually scares them. Mm-hmm. So it's Gremlins, Grem- Gremlins too. Uh, I think is very funny. I love the Gremlins movies so much. Gremlins, um, uh, there's a couple of, of Joe Dante films that I'm like, those are fun. So maybe something like that. Yeah, maybe maybe she'll she'll be able to get into that because they're very tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, although I have to say, Gremlins freaked me out when I was a kid, and it still freaks me out just a little bit. Like every <laughs> once in a while, I'm like, that is just creepy. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah, they're great. I love it. Uh, well, for what are Halloween, you doing <laughs> for Halloween? I I am. I've got a, a friend coming over today, but um, uh, mostly I'm just sitting on my couch eating candy and watching scary movies because I've been watching nothing but horror films. I was checking my list, with a couple of exceptions. I've watched almost nothing but horror films for two months, <laughs> and I feel like. I feel like when I shift back over to watching non-horror films, I'm just going to expect people to get murdered horribly. Like, I'll just be sitting there being like, why isn't Irene Dunn murdering anyone? Like, I feel like this is really a slow burn, you know? It's a fair question. I would, I, I think that Irene Dunn could have been a great, you know, horror film 
film person. She's so innocent, apparently. Um, <laughs> um, but so, you know, since since this is the end, as we're recording, this is before Halloween, by the time this episode gets released, it'll be after Halloween. And we will be into Noir Bember, um, which means nothing to people that are not like on film Twitter or in film communities. <laughs> But it's the time of year where we watch a whole bunch of noir films. Um, and and it's interesting because film noir and horror obviously have a lot of affinities with each other. And in fact, there's some films that you could kind of question, are they, are they horror films? Are they more in the film noir category? Are they thrillers? Um, so in the interest of that, we're gonna talk about a filmmaker who is, uh, has been a major influence both on horror and on noir. And his, a number of his films actually do kind of straddle the line between those two uh, categories. And that's Fritz Lang. Uh, Fritz Lang, who was a major silent filmmaker in, um, in Weimar, Germany, uh, eventually Due, due to the uh, reception of certain of his films, um, actually wound up having to flee Germany uh, with the rise of, of the Nazi party. Um, he went to France and then eventually to the United States where he, where he really began to make a lot more what we would term film noir. He also made some Westerns, um, which I always find very amusing. <laughs> um, Rancho Notorious is a, is a great Fritz Lang Western, but it just seems like such an incongruity there. <laughs> um, so to start out with, I think that, you know, just want to talk about a couple of his films that sort of you do kind of make you question, is this, is this noir? Is this horror? Is this sci-fi? Is this something completely different? Because he had a lot of different interesting thematics in a lot of his films. So he's particularly interested in dreamlike imagery. This is a guy who, by the way, is um, a German expressionist, uh, which we've talked about before. So there's a lot of dreamlike imagery. There's a lot of chiaroscuro in his work. Um, there's a lot of interest in kind of the psychological aspects of human of, of crime of uh human evil um a lot of his stuff doesn't actually deal with the supernatural per se but it does deal with the things that human beings do to one another which is really interesting particularly in the context of um of weimar germany and then of um uh you know kind of the rise of the nazi party during that period so there's a lot of interesting things that he has going on in his cinema but his Big film, the film that pretty much, if you've seen a Fritz Lang film, you've probably seen this one, is Metropolis. <laughs> um, so, I don't know if that's true. Really? Yeah. I think probably M is one that more people have seen if they've... I mean, if you're specifically seeking out Fritz Lang, then yeah, you're definitely going to see Metropolis. And if you're interested in like sci-fi and stuff, you've probably crossed paths with it, but... Yeah, I know a lot of people who've never seen Metropolis. I I guess maybe some some of it might simply be the, the people that I know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but but no, I mean that's probably true. Uh, also, a number of his a number of his his later noirs in Hollywood definitely mm -hmm. people have seen more of. And I think Metropolis is very daunting. It's a massive film, right? It's, it's an undertaking. Yeah, yeah. Depending mm -hmm. upon which version of it you watch, it's between like a hundred. It's it's between two, just over two hours, or you know, two and a half to three hours. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and a lot of people are like, oh, this is really bizarre, but actually it's not that strange for that 
period of silent filmmaking. Um, Fritz Lang, most of his early uh, Weimar films are that long. They're basically meant to be shown in parts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not actually, you know, very few, uh, I don't know the exact exhibition history of Metropolis, so probably I could be corrected for, for, by someone who does, but very few of these films were films that he actually, that you were actually intended to sit down and watch from beginning to end, um, in a single sitting in a movie theater. These were things that were being shown in pieces. Yeah. Um, and which the- I think in the case of Metropolis is part of why we don't have a complete version of it either yeah the most complete version was released uh i think back in in 2010 which is a, pretty much as close i think to the fight the original cut of metropolis that we're ever going to get mm-hmm. um pieces of it were lost uh but then um several sections of the film were recovered so they they recovered a print i think this was the the argentinian print yeah um, that they recovered this print that was almost complete. And so there, so it actually filled in a number of gaps that up until that point had only been filled in by um, pieces of information that uh, the uh, restoration experts had managed to glean from you know, press releases, from stills that still existed, things like that. So we've got a film that now runs 148 minutes. The original film supposedly ran 153 minutes. So really close, like maybe five minutes are missing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it fills in some of those gaps that like we kind of only been able to speculate about. But I, I think one of the things with Metropolis is if, you know, if you're right, and you probably are, Karen, that, that a lot of people haven't actually seen it, right? Yeah. Um, you've still seen it because you've seen imagery from it. Yes. Um, this is a film that influenced Blade Runner. It influenced a lot of future sci-fi. It influenced... Um, a lot of uh, a lot of contemporary sci-fi, um, and it influenced things like horror and film noir. So you can see if you just watch Metropolis, you recognize images, right? You see things just like I know that I've seen that before. I've seen that in another film. I saw that in Blade Runner. I saw that in the nineteen thirty-one Frankenstein, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's really a fascinating kind of amalgam of all of these different styles um concerns you know so so the basic plot is that uh it's set in this somewhat dystopia utopia future where there's a massive split between the the wealthy and the poor and uh the wealthy kind of live above ground in metropolis where they're where you know they're basically this edenic existence this this existence like paradise um the entire thing, though, is being run by the workers who live beneath and essentially run the um, the apparatus that keeps the city alive. But they're they're constantly working. They're con- they're constantly um, try. They're they're constantly being forced to work until they basically fall down dead. And the conflict, of course, is that what develops over the course of the film is that a lot of the wealthy don't even realize who is running their own city. Um, so it's a really interesting film and it's one of those films that has been interpreted a multitude of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, socialist commentators, Marxist commentators have kind of taken it on as, as theirs. Um, there's an argument to be made for it as a kind of a democratic utopia concept that eventually you know, we're gonna have to bring the haves and have nots together and create our own, create the society out of that versus having this massive split between the rich and the poor. 
Um, so what are your feelings about it, Karen? I mean, it's, it's a fascinating film. I think that it is a difficult film to watch at times. It is. I've, I've watched it a couple of times and I feel like every time I watch it, something else clicks like, Oh, okay. Now I get this or that. Cause it, it, even though it's a silent film, um, I don't know, like there's, there, it's, it's so dense with, with ideas and there's so much detail to, to look at, um, that it's really hard to take it all in, in, in just one viewing. And I think a lot, I think a lot of the people that have seen it that are not like really into film, like they'll just watch it to check off the box. I think that they tend to view it kind of cursorily where they'll watch it once and then they go, okay, yeah, that's... Now I've seen it, and then they just kind of move on. I think this is something that, um, it really, it's interesting that it came out in the time that it did when the world was sort of going through this, like, big political, um, transition. You had a lot of countries that were trying to find their way. You had some countries that were definitely headed in the wrong direction. And I think this really has a lot to say about... Um, not where we should be, but where we're headed. I don't, I don't think personally, I don't feel like my viewing of it, my reading of the film, isn't that it takes a strong stance on, on what is right or, or, or how we should, how, how we should be governing ourselves, but it definitely tells you what's wrong. Yeah. It, it has a political perspective and it's an incredibly political film. Yeah. Um, actually, like, like I say, this use of the, the whole, the whole, and it's very, bold right it's not this it isn't terribly euphemistic it's just like the rich are literally living on top of the poor yep (laughs) who keep everything running but suffer the entire time like that's the basic setup of the society right Mm -hmm. and and yeah when you're thinking about this is a film that was released in 1927 right so this is kind of at the height of Weimar Germany and during this whole like long political discussion we have the rise of communism abroad you have the rise of fascism um you've got all of these and the and the rise of more democratic mediums you've got Germany in a post-war era that is seeing a wider and wider split between the rich and the poor um and you're seeing people react in different ways to it and so so yeah so it's it's difficult to parse out exactly what the film is trying to say at the end but i think you're you're probably right that it's not necessarily proposing a solution um but it is saying that there we don't know how to solve this but we do know that this is that something is wrong and something is going to have to change yeah well and it's amazing how relevant here we are almost a hundred years later and how relevant and how timely some of these themes still are. So it's like, we ha- <laughs> we still haven't learned anything in the last hundred years. Or they, you know, will start to, to go in the right direction and then it gets snapped back, you know? And, and it's kind of like this constant swinging pendulum, I guess. But, um, you know, I mean, look at what's happening right now. Everyone's complaining. Well, not everyone, but a lot of people are complaining about this labor shortage where companies can't find people to work for them. And it's like, yeah, because people have finally said, I'm tired of being treated like shit to keep you making a ton of money. When word comes out that the three richest people in America have made hundreds of billions of dollars in the last year. And everyone's like, well, I'm still poor. You know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting how it's metropolis still 
is timely in a lot of its themes. Yeah, it really is. And it's one of the things that frightens me just a little bit, to be honest. Um, Last year, around the height of the pandemic, I actually started rereading um, the book From Caligari to Hitler, which I have talked about before, and I really encourage film critics to read, Um, and non-film critics. It's actually a very readable book, uh, and it does kind of make you want to watch a lot of films from that era. But the, the whole concept behind it is that basically the psychological history of Germany in kind of the post-World War One, pre-World War Two era can be seen through its cinema. That's mm-hmm. that's like the basic thesis, right? And and it, and the book talks a lot about Fritz Lang and a lot about Metropolis and, and all of that, but this, the parallels between our, our current society and Weimar Germany is more than a little disturbing, I have yeah. to say. And, and there, there is that like, um, and I do think that it's, you know, it's interesting to apply some of the concepts that are very specifically about Germany, right? Um, to our contemporary moment in America and being like, you know, a lot of these things are true. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we should maybe be a little concerned about that. But, <laughs> but so something like Metropolis, and I think that Metropolis still is watched, to be honest, you know, Metropolis is one of those films that's still watched, it's still talked about, it's still kind of held up as one of these great silent film masterpieces, right? I think one of the reasons for that is because it's so applicable and has continued to be so applicable, what is being said in that film says a lot about Germany of the period, but it also says a lot about capitalist society generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny, the other day I saw something that said that, um, Hitler said that this was one of his favorite films and then the person said I'm pretty sure he did not watch it well or watch it right or something like that <laughs> basically he got the wrong message out of it <laughs> well so this this was this actually leads into a, an interesting um conversation about Lang because Lang's own political affiliations have always been a bit questionable um and I have to say right right here I'm not a Lang biographer I don't know everything about his his you know history or anything like that his wife, uh, with whom he wrote Metropolis and who, who worked on a lot of his early um, films, Teo von Harbu, was a Nazi sympathizer. Um, and she actually, I believe she remained in Germany when he left. So he uh, fled Germany in 1933. Um, and there's a, reason, there's a reason for that, which we'll get into in a minute. But, um, but she remained behind and so she was, so there is this tension, I think, that exists in a lot of Lang's films that, you know, what does he actually believe, right? What, what are these films actually meant to be saying? Um, you know, I would make the argument that it just in terms of the films themselves, I don't think that Lang is particularly a fascist filmmaker. Um, I don't think that, he's, that his films are particularly supportive of totalitarianism. And you only need to look at films like um, Dr. Mabusa, The Gambler, which is the 1922 film, um, and then especially The Testament of Dr. Mabusa, which uh, is 1933 as a sequel to Dr. Mabusa the Gambler, um, but is about the concept of this arch criminal who essentially, he, he's a literal spirit that inhabits people from beyond the grave. <laughs> um, and, and it's creepy. <laughs> and it's creepy, yeah, exactly. And, but it, so it's this whole concept of chaos of creating a situation where people don't know what's going to happen next. There is, you know, explosions and violence and 
pointless crimes, right? And in creating this chaos, you basically open the way for this arch criminal to take over, right? And it's kind of hard to read that in any other way than as a critique of Nazi Germany, particularly a film that is being made in Germany in 1933 that was actually banned by uh by Ufa, um and and was pretty much just excoriated and said you know this they the nazis recognized themselves in this story definitely mm-hmm. um but so it's a fascinating film this is the film that is actually my it's my favorite fritz lang film because i think he does so much in it and it is a critique of nazi germany but it's also um uh, so, the, and this, this was actually, uh, actually, I was just looking this up. Um, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany while the film is being written. So this is a direct criticism of Adolf Hitler. And you're meant to see Hitler in Dr. Mabusa. But, um, like I said, this is one of my favorite films because you've got, uh, you've got this fascinating political context. And then at the same time, it is just creepy as hell. Like you're saying, it's it's a scary movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that it more, more than almost any other film other than maybe M, which we'll talk about in a minute, I think that it does kind of represent that, that straddling of the line between horror and film noir because it is, it is a horror film, but it also is a noir film. It's about crime. It's about this arch criminal. Um, it's about the but it's also about this almost supernatural power that he has to inhabit other people. Mm-hmm. So you just saw this. I did. Um, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, I really liked it. It was funny because I was just like, cause I didn't even really know what it was. Um, I just knew you had mentioned it um, this last week when we were preparing for this episode. So I was just like, okay, well I'll, that'll, I'll, that'll be one of the ones that I make sure to watch this week. So I didn't even really know what it was about until I was watching it. And then I got to the point when you, you figure out that, yeah, he's, or when you see that he's in, inhabiting people and I just went, wait a second. Is didn't Denzel Washington do a movie where something like this happened? Why did I never know that that was like inspired by a Fritz Lang movie? <laughs> and um, sure enough, it's the movie Fallen where he plays a homicide detective and someone that gets executed then starts like going from person to person and killing people like the spirit does. Anyway, nobody has made this connection though. I've been looking for stuff and nobody compared nobody like says anything about it being related to dr mabusa but whatever i made that connection so um anyway uh <laughs> i know it's but i mean it's true it's it yeah. is an influential film and it's it funny totally because is. it's funny because it's influential even though not tons of people have actually seen it right mm-hmm. this isn't it isn't one of those like oh you know you see citizen kane metropolis in the testament of dr mabusa right right yeah but that's the thing. It's it's um, there was a lot of stuff in it, a lot of imagery, a lot of of just story points that I was like, wow, this really has inspired a lot of of films that come much later. Um, but I love the effects in it, even though I mean it's the '30s; they're very very dated. But just looking at and imagining how they went about creating some of the effects of like the spirit. Or even some of the pyrotechnic effects and things. I was just like, man, this is really um, 
they did some very clever things and it just I would love to be able to go back in time and just like sit on the sidelines and watch them set up a scene for for this film because it just the the technique of it and the craft of it was just really um really cool it's it's a really spectacular film in a lot of ways um mm -hmm. and and particularly that that imagery it's one that haunts me forever because it's so creepy it, the image of Dr. Mabuse with the massive eyes yes. and the like exposed brain is mm -hmm. such a frightening image. <laughs> yes. And, and it is just like this, it's this out, it's this manifestation of what he is, right. Of his power and his insanity and his, his ability to infect people. Because the whole thing with Dr. Mabusa is that he's brilliant, right? He is, right. He's brilliantly intelligent. He's a brilliant criminal. He forms this whole uh, massive criminal organization, and that's what the the first the first uh, Dr. Mabusa film, Dr. Mabusa the Gambler. That's what this is about. It's about this arch criminal, right? Who's pursued by um, a detective, and like all kinds of things happen. It's like a five-hour film, by the way. So uh, <laughs> another one of those that you can watch in in pieces over the course of several days. Um, but but when you get to, to this, it really is this very obvious, in a lot of ways, metaphor for what is happening. Um, this idea of, of a, a criminal infecting people and mm -hmm. being able to take over people's bodies and possess people via, and part of it is via his writing, right? Via yeah. his, his, his intelligence, but also his ability to essentially convince people that what he is doing and that what he thinks is what they believe in. Um, and so it has this, this fantastic power as a political allegory and, and it's just a horror film. You know, there are um, the scene where the, I think it's the young couple gets trapped in the room that gradually begins to fill with water. Yeah. Uh, which is such a well structured scene. It's like something out of a Saw movie or something. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. That was another one of those things where I was just like, wow, we've seen this kind of setup in in much later films and, you know, fairly recent films, too, because they're trapped in this room. Everything they're trying to do to get out of it, like, they can't break through the bricks because there's a steel plate behind it, the door, they can't get that open, like, they can't just go out a window, and so it's like they're completely trapped in this room, and then it starts to fill with water. And then you're like, how are they going to get out of this? And, and that's very much a callback, if you watch any of Lang's earlier films, um, that's very much a callback to, like, the crime serials that he kind of made his name with, because... Um, that happens all the time. And in fact, a lot of crime serials from, you know, if you watch any of the French films like Fantomas or um, uh, Les Vampires, you have those kind of elaborate setups where, you know, the arch criminal has trapped our young lovers <laughs> in a room kind of thing. Um, how are they going to escape? And, and in this case, I like the fact that that's kind of brought forward into the 1930s and into a different style of filmmaking, right? Yeah. Um, but you still have those kind of callbacky elements, uh, and and so this this is a literal sequel to to Doctor Mabusa the Gambler. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a great film. I think that it's a um, it's available. I think on HBO Max, and it was on Criterion Channel for a long time. I don't it know. If it still is. is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really is worth seeing, and you can also see it without having seen Doctor Mabusa the Gambler. Totally, because I have not seen the gambler one and i felt like they give you enough backstory about who dr mabusa is 
to not be at all confused about what's going on here. Yeah, there's one sequence, I think, where they actually go to, like, where he was killed, or where he was, not where he was killed, mm-hmm. where he went insane. Yeah. Right? Because the the ending, spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen Dr. Mabusa the Gambler, the ending of Dr. Mabusa the Gambler is when he's basically haunted and attacked by all of the people that he's killed. Um, you know, again, this this element of, of horror being brought forward, but it's it's more of a psychological horror. He is so overwhelmed with guilt and with the violence that he has done that he's he's basically driven mad. Um, and so there's one section of the Testament of Dr. Mabusa where they actually go back to that space. And, uh, and, and there's a whole sequence within that. But um, that's really one of the only times I think in the film that you might bring a little bit more to it if you've seen the original. Uh, other than that, yeah, they, they explain who Dr. Mabusa is, why he's important, you know, all of that. I think probably because the Dr. Mabusa, the, the gambler was made in 1922. This is a film made 11 years later. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, probably some of you do not remember this. And you haven't been able to watch it on TV because you don't yeah. have one of those. <laughs> That's that's just as a side note. That's one of the interesting elements I think of all of these these kinds of older films. We have to remember most people were not watching films multiple times. You didn't that's see, true. you didn't you know rewatch Doctor Mabusa the Gambler fifteen times in anticipation of the sequel, right? <laughs> you couldn't yeah. because it wasn't there. It didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. We are actually very, very lucky, I think. Uh, we, we do not realize how lucky we are in our ability to rewatch films. And yet people take that opportunity and just mess it up. Because then they get too invested sometimes. And then that causes all kinds of other problems. Yeah. Um, so moving on from Dr. Mabuse, we're kind of... Sorry, I didn't mean to jump far. We're kind of going to jump yes. back a little yeah. bit here. Um and and talk about i think one of the one of the first line films that is often referred to as a pure horror film i think that this is questionable because of the um the structure of it and the subject matter but the film that you you said that a lot of people uh, have seen which is fritz lang's m mm-hmm. from 1931 starring peter Lorre in probably for a guy who had a very long and chilling career um, I think that this is his most chilling performance. Yeah. And uh, the the story is, of course, um, about a, a child killer who is uh, mer- who's preying upon small children in um, in Berlin in the ni- in the early 1930s, and is kind of being tracked down both by the police and by a criminal organization that are upset because um, he's. They're upset for a couple of different reasons. One of them is that he's making them look bad, right? Because people are targeting them, um, believing that he's one of them. And the the other one is just this this understanding that we're criminals. We steal things. We rob people. We do bad shit, but we don't kill children, right? Yeah. That's not something that we do. Um, and so what starts out as kind of this interesting, almost police procedural in investigating and searching for this killer eventually begins to transform into the story about mob violence and about um it it goes to some really interesting i think psychological and cultural places so before we like get into that again karen what are your thoughts on this (laughs) 
I love the way that it's constructed. I think yeah. just in the beginning, you have this this scene of, you know, you've got these kids out playing and this little girl, and then suddenly she just doesn't come home. And you see that balloon, mm-hmm. like she gets, yeah, and so you just see that balloon like kind of stuck on the power lines or whatever. And you just, you know what's happened. And then that is such a, a great setup because <laughs> it shows you can tell exactly what happened to someone without actually having to show it. Like <laughs> it's so, it's so true. I'm sorry to interrupt. It is mm-hmm. so true. Like it's so well done and so frightening. Yeah. And you never, they never completely say they, you know, that these children are being killed. There's a implication that he's molesting them beforehand. Right. Right. Um, but you never, they never completely say it and they never show what is actually happening. And it's so effective because what your imagination can supply is more terrifying really than what could have been shown on screen. Exactly. So what we're saying is filmmakers stop trying to give us all the details. We don't need them. (laughs) Our brains can fill that in perfectly well. It's Um, it's a a great template for, um, for the effective use of of what is shown and what isn't in horror films, right? Because not seeing, and actually it's something that some of the best horror films use. Um, Halloween is very good at, what it shows and what it doesn't show mm-hmm. um, that building of the tension the anticipation of the murder of the crime is often worse than actually seeing you know michael myers stab somebody right yeah well even in psycho where you do see um where you do see the stabbing you never actually see the knife break the skin or anything like the way that it's photographed yeah. you don't need to see that level of detail to get the full scope of what's happening and and a lot of the rest of the film in Psycho, there's not actually that much violence. In there's Psycho. not. Mm-mm. Like it's it's and it's very quick. When it happens, it's very quick. It's sudden, and then it goes away. You don't dwell on it for that long. And because of that, I think it, it makes it that much more frightening because it's that a constant anticipation. Right. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things right off the bat that I noticed with M is that that Fritz Lang really is good at, and you see this with other of his films too, but. He's really good at not overwhelming you with unnecessary details. He only gives you what you need to really understand what's happening and what's at stake. And I think M is such a great example of that. And and we see so much of that. And then, and the tension just builds and builds until like toward the end when you get this amazing sequence where you've got um, this, this child murderer and he's trapped in this building and he's trying to figure out how he's going to get out and it's like you've switched you switched to like you're on his perspective but you're never on his side and um and it, it's just it it's so it's riveting it really is and 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 just watching like when the blind balloon salesman figures out you know like hey wait that's the guy you know it's like this blind man is the one who <laughs> basically solves the crime and um i yeah i it's a great, great film, and it's scary. It it is scary, and that and that sequence in particular, I think, like you say, it, you you begin to switch perspective, mm-hmm. right? For a lot of the film, you're following along, kind of the police and this other criminal organization. You've kind of got a balance between the two of them, so you don't actually see the criminal for a while, right? You right. don't. You're not actually introduced directly to to the Peter Lorre character for some time. And then as they get deeper and they begin to figure out who's doing this, you, you kind of are eased into him. 
And initially, initially we're meant to be repelled by him. We're frightened of him. He, and he, what he's doing is horrible things. And then by the time you get to that sequence where you're actually very much embedded within his perspective, you do be i don't think that you begin to like him you begin to feel sympathy with him because he's being pursued yeah and the film makes you feel that terror mm -hmm. and that sense of like because he knows too many people are after him there's there's a fatality to it. he's going to get caught someone is going to catch him in some ways it will it would be better for him if the cops got him than if the criminals did yeah yeah definitely because um, like you then, say, it really does ramp up that idea of the mob violence and it's done so effectively. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, we've seen, we've seen more recent films do that very well too, but, um, it's, it's just, it really, I don't know, just the way that it's, it's, uh, because you've got these really scary dudes, <laughs> it's not just like the townspeople. It's not like all these yeah. kids' parents coming after him. It's like, no, these are really scary people, and now they're riled up, and who knows what's going to happen if anybody gets in their way. Yeah, it, exactly. And um, and then you come to kind of the trial sequence, right, where you've got this yeah. this kangaroo court of these criminals, right, who are putting putting this man on trial for what he's done. And and they know that he did it. We know that he did it. He knows that he did it. I think that this, I mean, Laurie's performance at this moment is so moving. And for a film that has set up for so long, you feeling this absolute repulsion, right? Mm -hmm. You're so horrified by this man. And we've seen what he's done. Right. And the pain that he has caused people and the, and the innocence that he has destroyed. And then he's just like, you know, he goes into this whole speech where he's just like, I can't help it. And it's heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is down to Lurie's performance. He's not being, you know, like, oh, I am a great criminal and, you know, I would do it again. He's just like, no, I hate myself. Right. I hate that I'm like this. I can't help myself. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, it is. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's, it's shocking for what we know this man has done. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's so believable too. And it's like, I mean, you still need to see some punishment because what he's done is horrible, but it's also, it's this interesting way to like really make you think about criminals and, and, um, not their intent, but kind of what drives them, you know, it's like for him and, uh, and obviously uh, he's a bad dude, but, uh, for him, it's not about like making money or even like just getting some weird, like sick pleasure off of it. It's like he, he can't stop himself. And Peter Laurie, I think just really sells that so well. It's, it's an incredible performance. Yeah, and, and like you say, he points out to the criminals and his lawyer points out that, you know, all of these people that are judging him can can make a choice, right? They can yeah. decide not to be criminals. They can do something else. Um, the the lawyer, I think, points out that uh, uh, the the guy, the man who's presiding as the judge is wanted on, on counts of manslaughter, mm -hmm. right? So he's killed people and that it's not fair to kill this man who basically is saying he is insane right he has no control over what he's doing and he, he even talks about like going into this state where he doesn't he doesn't even remember what he's done yeah um and then he comes and then he, he's conscious again and um 
and realizes what he's done and is horrified by it. So it's it's a really moving film for such a frightening film, for such a, it shifts the audience's sympathy and it really makes you kind of forced to sort of interrogate your own desires about punishment and about who deserves to be punished. Um, I, I think it's, it's definitely one of Lang's best films. Like you say, it's, it might very well be the film that most people see of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it really, like you're saying too, it really calls into to question is, is prison really always the right answer for criminals? You know, we want to see people locked up. We want to see them punished for crimes, especially crimes this heinous, but it, I mean, we've talked about this, I think, when we when we talked about The Big House a few years, uh, a while back, which came out around the same time, you know? Like, it's, it's interesting that in the early 1930s, you have these looks at the criminal justice system in two different countries, um, where it really is driving home that point that there's not one size fits all when it comes to justice. And, and there's not just one answer. It's not just everyone's either a bad guy or a good guy, you know? Yeah. It, it's um, again, for, for a film from this time period, from this country, etc. It's, it's a very sophisticated work and, um, and it's, it continues to be universal. Like you're saying there, there is this, like, it's this constant dialogue of like, what are we supposed to do with this? Um, you know, is the the goal really to to kill people like him, or is it to help them and save them? You know, and and ultimately, what about the children? You know, the film ends on these people ask. You know, essentially these these parents who are never going to have their children back, right? Right, and basically being asked, what are what are we supposed to do? We need to watch the children more. We need to take care of the children. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the undercurrents of a lot of that, a lot of this is that the children should never be exposed to this kind of danger. So it is within the responsibility of the entire society to look after the children. Yep. Um, it's, it's a, yeah, it really is a fantastic film. And so, so then, um, so we've got M, then we have the Testament of Dr. Mabusa and then Lang leaves Germany <laughs> <laughs> yep. and he leaves Germany, um, because and this this is what he says you know there's some question about the timeline and everything but um he essentially leaves germany because goebbels who was a who's the propaganda minister uh, for hitler's government um basically informs him that you know you're a great filmmaker you're one of germany's best filmmakers we want you to make movies for us um and he off and supposedly offers laying the, the position of head of the of ufa which is the state film apparatus which eventually became the only film apparatus in germany um lang basically says i'll have to think about it and almost immediately runs off to paris because he doesn't want to make films for the for uh the nazi party and you know refusing to do that also would put him in a great deal of danger so he just takes off um, and eventually he comes to the United States where he begins to make uh, a lot of horror films, or not horror films, film noir. And so this is where he kind of shifts from this interest in, you know, horror or the supernatural into more of the psychological stuff. And, and M and the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, I think, really bridge that gap in a lot of ways. Um, so he makes a whole bunch of different uh films in in hollywood from about the the mid 1930s into the 1950s 
um, including uh, Manhunt, Hangman Also Die, Ministry of Fear, Cloak and Dagger, um, Fury, which is uh, very much a similar uh, film, kind of a sister film to M, which is about a man who is incorrectly accused of a crime and the mob gets whipped up against him and he, um, uh, he is targeted by mob violence, even though, again, it's sort of this interesting counterpoint to M because the, the character that Spencer Tracy plays is not likable. Like, but he didn't do it, right? So he's he's this angry, violent man, but he's not a particular, and he's not a particularly likable character. But he didn't actually commit the crime that he's accused of, and so you have again this kind of playing with the audience's sympathy, um, which is something else that we see in Scarlet Street. Yes, and so we get into these like uh, what are essentially noir films in the nineteen in the nineteen forties, including Scarlet Street with uh, Edward G. Robinson and Joan Bennett. So you just saw Scarlet Street. So I'm going to let you talk about Scarlet Street to start off. It's, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, I literally watched it this morning. Um, so it's basically this Edward G. Robinson plays this guy, Chris Christopher Cross, um, who works at a bank, but um, really his passion is painting. And um, and that's what he loves to do. And then one night he meets this, this woman and he basically like sees her she's just been a- attacked like mugged and so he's helping her out and um then he just he becomes quite smitten with her but it, the problem is he's married but he's not happily married his wife kind of sucks and um and uh, anyway but chris is a painter and he starts to to open up about that with this this new woman kitty that um is played by joan bennett and so they start to get to know each other but really kitty's kind of um uh she's got a boyfriend and the two of them are basically trying to scam him because they think because he works at a bank that he's just got all this money and um so he's falling in love with her. She's totally in love with her boyfriend slash fiance, who is a terrible, terrible person. Um, he's abusive. He's a scam artist. He's stringing Kitty along because he's never has any intention of actually marrying her. And um, yeah, it it leads to um, <laughs> it leads to a murder. And someone being wrongly accused of that murder. And, um, yeah, that's the basic synopsis. Um, but just the, yeah, what's, what's great about it, like, uh, what we were just talking about with, um, uh, sorry, what was the other one we were just talking about? (laughs) No, no, no. Um, uh. You just mentioned the other one, the one with Spencer Tracy. Oh, Fury. For Fury, yeah. Fury. So it's it's similar because basically what's happened in this um, is that, that Edward G. Robinson's character, this Chris guy, he is so in love with Kitty and so upset about his loveless marriage. And then her husband, who she they thought was dead, comes back. And it just puts him in this place of just you know, like despair. And he just really, he gets like desperate and he just wants out of his life. And, um, he goes into this blind rage and he ends up murdering Kitty and then sets up Johnny to be the, 
the fall guy for it. So Johnny ends up going off to prison and gets executed. And so now he's got this, this really sweet man who just wanted to paint. Um, he's got two deaths on his, on his hands. And even when he tries like toward the end of the film, he's trying to confess to police. Like I've killed these two people and no one will listen to him. Nobody believes him because nobody thinks he's capable of that. And so it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting thing because in the end, like the wrong person has been punished, but it's someone who really deserved to be punished for something because he was a terrible person. But then also you've got this, this guy who really is the culprit. And there's, there's this weird, like you want to see him punished because what he did was horrible, but ultimately he's punishing himself. And is that enough? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Well, and it's, it seems like, I mean, Lang really does fit into that kind of film noir concepts, right, uh -huh. of, the, of the, the late 1940s. And, and you can see that, like you're saying, in a lot of his earlier films. So you've got this Scarlet Street, which is a very, you know, it's very much a, a, not a standard film noir, but the plot itself is very fatalistic. Yep. It's, um, it's kind of like, you know, you would fall in love with the wrong person, behave stupidly with the wrong woman, you know, not recognize the people that are actually using you, things like that. Um, but a lot of this is playing out of concerns that Lang had started earlier in his career and that you can see in a lot of his, his other films, that playing with sympathy um, and an audience perspective. And so, so liking the person, and this is something that Alfred Hitchcock does too, for that matter, liking the person who is the killer and not liking the person who is the innocent man. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so it, it's, and, and Lang does this in a lot of his later films. He, there, there's always this kind of pushing and pulling between um, uh, who we know is the culprit, right? In a crime or who, who we know has done something horrible and who we know is innocent and what that actually means and who we feel in sympathy with. And he plays with that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this one was just such a, such a fun one because I could not guess where it was going. Like, I mean, uh -huh. there were certain things where I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm sure this is what's going to happen. And actually, because there's this whole thing where he's talking to a friend, Chris is Edward G. Robinson. He's talking to a friend who comes over to visit and who wants to look at his paintings and he sees this picture on the wall that's of this this police officer and it turns out that that is the first wife or the husband sorry the wife's first husband and he's explaining like oh yeah he drowned jumping into the river to save a woman and when that happened i just assumed oh, okay, it's going to somehow turn out that the woman he was trying to save was Kitty and that she's been involved in this whole thing, like, just by chance. Like, not that, you know, not that that was all set up, but that wasn't where they went at all. It turned out the husband wasn't dead. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that's a cool twist, you know? And, um, yeah, there are just some really fun, fun details to it. Well, and I do have to say a lot of Lang's later films have those sorts of twists where you think that it's going in one direction, then it winds up going off in another. There, I, I don't want to spoil any of them by being like, oh, by the way, there's a twist in them. But some <laughs> of his some of his later movies definitely have that. And so they're worth checking out. You know, you always have to to kind of go into it being like, I think I know what's happening, mm -hmm. but it might not be. <laughs> yeah. So apologies for spoiling Scarlet Street for anybody who hasn't seen it, but... Um... It's a good one. It's, you should watch it. 
but still, I think that most, a lot of his films, not all of them, but a lot of them have those elements to them, but they're not spoiled necessarily by yeah. knowing that there's a twist or, or anything. So like, for instance, I know how M ends, right? I know mm-hmm. what happens all throughout the film. I've seen it five or six times um, because it's such a great film. I've seen Scarlet Street a couple of times. I've seen um, uh, The Big Heat and While the City Sleeps. The, these are like... They're very good films, and I, I think that they they stand up because you can keep on watching them over and over again. And even if you know, you know, okay, this is how it ends. This is what this is. Uh, who did it? You know, etc. You can still find other things to enjoy about them. That's the thing. Like, and <laughs> recently we've had this conversation emerge again about spoilers in in new movies and things and. And uh, I do think as journalists, we have a responsibility when we've gotten to see a movie before the rest of the world has access to it, that we should not (laughs) ruin it for people. But also, if a movie is ruined by knowing a twist or by knowing, you know, what's going to happen, then it's not a very good movie in the first place. If it's if it's relying on that then uh, then there's some problems in the filmmaking, you know, it has to be able to hold up. It's it's true. It's true. Not, um, I I think that there's a like you said. I think that there's a lot to be said about not you know saying hey by the way this is how this movie ends or this is who dies or who survives or whatever right. else or this is who did it. But but yeah, the the best ones it doesn't it doesn't ultimately matter. Yeah, um, exactly. And then they have rewatchability too because mm-hmm. if, like you say. Even when you already know the outcome, like I've seen Clue a million times, you know, it's like (laughs) I already know all three versions of how that story ends and it's still just as fun every single time. Mm -hmm. And I think any good movie can can withstand the spoilers because the rewatchability is there. Yeah, I mean... I've seen Psycho how many times? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and I I knew the first time I saw Psycho, I knew what the twist was. And mm-hmm. yet, I loved it. Um, and I still love it. It's still so, scary. It, it absolutely is. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, like, put the ending on Fritz Lang's career. He really had a fantastic career, and particularly um, in the 1940s in Hollywood. One of my other kind of favorite films of his from this period is House by the River, which again kind of it, it it actually uses a lot of the things that we've been talking about this idea of the a, a protagonist who is incredibly unlikable um someone that we don't actually want to win but we are kind of forced into his perspective for most of the film and so there is this almost sense of we know okay so just, just say this we know within about the first 15 minutes of the film that this guy commits a murder mm-hmm. um and and it's not a, it, this isn't like a accidental crime of passion. Oh no, I killed someone. This is like he is a fucking asshole, <laughs> and uh, and you want him to be caught. But we spend so much time with him um, that there is this like we know there's almost a sense of like well, but if he's caught, the movie's going to end. Um, I'm interested to see what happens to this guy next. And, and that element, I think, is really interesting in House by the River. And it's something that gets used in a lot of, a lot of Lang films and a lot of films generally, where we kind of, we know that if the killer is caught, it's going to be the end of the story. And we want to see where the story is going to go. Um, so I really recommend House by the River. It's like, 
the style is nightmarish. It's very, it's obviously he's using a lot of these influences of German expressionism. Um, and it, it's quite frightening as a sort of a psychological investigation, which so many of Lang's films from this period are. Awesome. Well, I will check that out. So any last thoughts about Fritz Lang, Karen? Um, I need to watch more of his movies. That is my last thought. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I looked and there are like eight of them actually that are available on Tubi. There's a number that are on Hoopla and Canopy. So these are films that are available out there in the world for free. Yeah. Yeah. They, and they really should be watched. I mean, he did make one of the greatest, I think, film noirs of all time, which is The Big Heat. Mm -hmm. uh, which has gone on and off a Criterion channel. I think that it's still available elsewhere. It's it's a it's a great film. It really is. It's um, and not just for the very famous and brutal scene where Gloria Graham gets a face full of hot coffee. <laughs> uh, it's I keep missing that one. You definitely see it. It's it's a very intense movie. And I say this as someone who really doesn't like Glenn Ford. I actually like Glenn Ford in this film. Mm, cool. Um, so I think that, that closes out our Fritz Lang uh, discussion, probably. I did just want to bring up one small thing before we close everything down, <laughs> which is that um, Karen really liked Dune. And I think she's wrong for having that opinion. Um, Karen, do you have anything to say to justify yourself beyond what you said in your, in your very well-written and well-argued review? <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I think that really what it comes down to is that I was very smitten with Jason Momoa. And that is my plea. That is my plea. You know what? <laughs> you know what? We can, we can agree on that. We can definitely agree on that. Jason Momoa is definitely like the highlight of this film. And there are not a lot of them. But <laughs> he is great. He is so, he's so badass. And, uh, and yeah, so, so we can definitely be like, all right, Jason Momoa, this film can stay because of Jason Momoa's performance. <laughs> he makes everything better, let's face <laughs> he, it. He does. He does. That's, that's very accurate. But, um, yeah, no, I, I was not a fan of Dune. Um, I knew you wouldn't be, and I told you you wouldn't be. Hardly surprising. Yeah, hardly surprising on this one. But um, I I honestly, going into it, I was like, I would like to like this. It would yeah. be nice because I love the book. And I, I would love, and you know, and the David Lynch version is fabulous. It's insane <laughs> and it's awful, but it's fabulous. Um, but... I've not seen a really good adaptation of Dune. And so I was very much hoping to actually see a good adaptation. And unfortunately that didn't happen, but yeah. Well, I will say it's funny because I started listening to the audiobook this week and the one that I'm listening to, it's kind of weird because there is a, a narrator, but then some of the chapters, they actually have actors voicing the dialogue too. I don't know why they don't do it for the whole thing, but whatever, it's fine. Um, it's just kind of weird, but, um, I am listening to this book and I'm thinking, because I only got through about the first hundred pages or so when I actually tried to read it a few years back. And I just really have some questions for Denis Villeneuve on what he thought he was doing with these female characters. Yeah, you think? <laughs> a little like, bit, dude. maybe? Which I did call out in my review. I, <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned that. But it's like, okay... So you're patting yourself on the back for 
talking about, you know, make this, this movie more feminine or whatever, but then you didn't. <laughs> like, I don't... <clears throat> yeah, so I'm, I'm very upset about that. I mean, and anyone who's trying to do an adaptation of Dune, it, it is an uphill battle because it's such a complex world that Herbert yeah. creates. The, the book is like a thousand pages. It's, it's massive, right? And it takes forever to get into the actual story because you're just being sort of shoved into this world that is very confusing and that has all of these words and concepts and everything that you don't immediately recognize. And so it's a, it's a difficult project to begin with. So you do have to give, I give anyone kind of props for attempting an adaptation of the story. But yeah, it, it's, I think that it removes all of the teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it makes the story itself, which is so interesting and so dependent upon what Herbert does with the concepts that he's working with, because it's a pretty standard narrative, actually, when you when you just look at the basic plot, um, it, it's fairly standard. And what makes it non-standard, what makes it different, and what makes it, I think, a lot more complicated is this addition of this massively complex world and massively complex understanding of things like the Messiah, uh, things like um, uh, religion and women's place in the world, et cetera. And that that's what makes the story work um, in a way that's very different from what the basic plot would actually tell you. And, uh, and unfortunately, Vianov, you know, is trying to do something, but I, I just don't think that he's succeeded particularly. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that he's a smart enough filmmaker to succeed at making this story in the way that it needs to be made. I would agree with that. So, yeah, I'm not going to ask you to justify yourself any more than that. <laughs> Except that I feel you have attacked me personally. Um, I did. It was all it was all <laughs> me, just like, fuck Lauren. <laughs> I mean, this film is a personal affront to me, specifically. Like, Denis Villeneuve was like, was like you know what? I'm going to make a movie that Lauren will hate. Yes. And yes. this is just... This is just to annoy Lauren. Like he, that was what he was thinking the entire time. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Yep. So that is going to close us out, both for the end of Spooky Season and the beginning of Noir Member. Um, thank you, as always, to our patrons who include Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina. Nanina, there we go. Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for continuing to support us, guys. If you want to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizen dame. I managed to do that all in one breath. Um, Look at you. (laughs) Uh, We do have some fun bonus stuff. We've got our Matrix episode is up there. Uh, We've got some other older bonus episodes, and we do have new stuff coming up. So please, you know, like join in. Um, also, it just like enables us to keep the lights on and to, to keep the website up and to, to do all of that stuff. So thank you so much to those who, who are subscribing and we hope that other people will as well. We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and our Ko-Fi account, co-fi.com slash citizen dame if you just want to throw us a few dollars. Um, our website is citizendamepod.com where you can read Karen's Dune review. And I also have a, a review up of Julie Durkinau's latest film, Titian, which is quite a movie. And I don't know if I made sense when I talked about it, but I liked it. So that's the, the, basic, the basic understanding of, of that film. Uh, definitely, it was a great review. You did a good job. Thank you. People really should check that film out. It is a trip. 
Um, so yeah, we all, and we also have some more reviews coming up on the website. I think Karen has some, a few. In, Last in Night in Soho is in the works. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I look forward to that. And I've got a few uh, Blu-ray reviews coming up as well. Nice. Uh, you can also get in touch with us in a multitude of ways. You can send us an email, setusindamepot at gmail.com. Be nice. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to delete it. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. We're on Twitter and Instagram at CitizenDamePod, and we are on Letterboxd at CitizenDame. And on Letterboxd, we also have lists and fun things, and you can check out the sexy, sexy vampire movies, which I was very excited about making the list for. <laughs> uh so yeah do do check us out and you can also of course get in touch with us individually i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at lh business karen where are you i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at karen m peterson and that will close us out for this week we will talk to you later bye kitty <laughs> to laugh in your face ever since I first met you. You're old and ugly and I'm sick of you. Sick, sick, sick. Kitty, for heaven's sake. You killed Johnny? I'd like to see you try why he'd break every bone in your body. He's a man. You want to marry me? You? Get out of here. Get out.